0: Hello and welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from former Virgin Media Television Managing Director Pat Keeley about the launch of his new Dublin-based production, talent management and commercial partnerships business Bigger Stage. And Middle Child Creative Director Andrew Eastall about the UK indie's growing focus on feature docs following a recent Royal Television Society nomination. Former Virgin Media Television Managing Director Pat Keeley launched production, talent management and commercial partnerships outfit Bigger Stage earlier this year. The Dublin-based company will develop original content for the global market and hopes to showcase Ireland as a hub for international television production with a focus on unscripted entertainment. Bigger Stage is poised to open a UK office shortly and is currently in discussions with several US agencies to establish a North American presence – Keely spoke to Ruth Laws, about setting up the business amidst the pandemic, its string of recent hires and ambitions for the coming 12 months.
1: Bigger Stage is Ireland's newest media and entertainment business. We'd like to think a unique combination of television production, talent management and commercial partnerships. We believe there's a terrific opportunity to create more world-class programming from Ireland and we believe a combination of the three activities mixed with our base in Dublin will be a terrific opportunity to shine a light on what Ireland has to offer the global television and production industry.
2: Obviously, the pandemic has had a huge impact on every industry, including the TV industry. Did you have any reservations about launching um, a company at this moment?
1: Well, it, it's been an interesting last 12 months. That's for sure in terms of this wider intra- industry and a very challenging 12 months of that. In the context of creating the bigger stage brand and putting the business together, certainly we had moments of uh, reflection as to whether the timing was as opportune as it could be. And I think every time we we took that reflection, we quickly saw that you know the opportunity was to really be in a position to be operational and up and running at a time when demand is clearly hitting an all-time high in terms of the insatiable appetite, particularly in the space that we are going to be in, which will be predominantly unscripted and serving a wider, more international audience. I think what the pandemic has shown is the extraordinary appetite there is for unscripted content uh, across the board and the increasing number of platforms and customers there are for that content. So it's we we launched on the 1st of March and I guess Ireland is probably not unlike many markets in the world where we're starting to see light at the end of the tunnel and I think for us that works in terms of timing because the business is now fully operational and ready to go.
2: What do you hope to achieve with Bigger Stage in the next few years?
1: Well, I think we've got terrific ambition and I I think it starts with a heartfelt purpose at the centre of the business, which is to empower Irish talent to play in a bigger stage. So what good looks like in two, three years is really if we've achieved and lived to that purpose. And when I say Irish talent, that's both sides of the camera and it's, it's the wider extent of what Ireland has to offer. But it's also Ireland empowering Ireland to play in a bigger stage as a base and uh, as a potential hub for major production and the biggest players in that space uh, around the world. So what good looks like and what we hope to achieve, I guess, Ruth, is to attract significant work to Ireland and to be able to proudly look back on proof points of what Ireland and the industry here locally, and particularly through bigger stage, what we can offer to serve that appetite that we can see is growing. And I think the next couple of years will be a terribly exciting period for the industry industry as a whole and we think you know the timing is perfect for Ireland to really step up and take its place at that kind of bigger table
2: what do you think Ireland does have to offer why do you think it stands out compared to other markets
1: Well, I think there's quite a number of aspects to that. You know, there's a rich history in Ireland and the creative arts, film, scripted, animation, terrific reputations in what a country size of Ireland has achieved on the world stage. And I think that has come about by, you know, having a terrific sense of the creative arts within the country, you know, incredibly skilled workforce very, very sophisticated market. I would you know, argue Ireland is one of the most sophisticated television markets in the world. It, its bar is constantly raised by UK overspill. We're a nation that has grown up watching the best of television. Why? Because British television has overspilled sp- into the market. You know, long before our own public service broadcaster, RTE, launched, British television was being beamed into the country. So I think that has ensured that Ireland has has, has always had a very sophisticated approach to its television why? Because it's had to compete against the best in the world. So both between UK and US content that is readily available in every home of the country, the local Irish industry has had to step up and compete at that level. And the Irish broadcasters have demonstrated that because despite competing against BBC, ITV, Sky, all over spilling into the market, the four Irish channels, the four local Irish channels still retain over half the share of viewing. So I think Ireland has that sophisticated backdrop, but in addition to that, we're English speaking, you know, from post- Brexit, we're the only English-speaking country in the European Union, and that certainly is a is an attractive proposition in the context of English being the the international language of of media and entertainment, the creative backdrop. As I said, stable economy, very competitive costs. You know, we 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 can really produce high quality but very cost efficiently, and there are a not insignificant amount of tax incentives in the market as well. Uh, we have attractive incentives, particularly in the scripted and animation space. And I think one of our purposes at bigger stage will be to drive incentivization in unscripted to attract the level of work and the volume work that we see coming through in in scripted and animation.
2: Do you think there are any other emerging territories?
1: Well, I guess we've watched what's been going on elsewhere. You know, I think can't help but notice that the the popularity of the mass Singer. And you look at South Korea being a booming market for regional formats previously in my previous role, we would have taken a close look at Israel and seen, you know, what the likes of Cachette have been achieving and setting the scene for a small market to punch way above its weight in terms of international IP creation. Uh, Ireland, I think, you know, has very much done its piece in terms of being an emerging market, very much an international model for high quality and cost effective production as I say that's that's that emerging opportunity is very much at the heart of bigger stage in being able to attract the major networks and streamers who we all know are looking for cost effective high quality international production bases and you know I have to say we're having very exciting conversations in this space but it wouldn't be without taking a look and maybe some learnings and understanding what's going on in similar markets and other small markets who have tried to step into that space.
2: And you've spoken earlier in this interview about the importance of unscripted and the appetite of unscripted Um, what particular genres within that will you focus on?
1: Well we're particularly focused I would say in terms of fact-ent, format creation, light-ent, all with a view to the opportunity that those genres present in terms of IP for export. Thrilled to have Sean O'Weirdon on board who joins us from his previous role as Head of Development at Betty uh, prior to that chalkboard and BBC and Sean brings a terrific uh, reputation in this space. So certainly at the heart of the business will be fact-end, light-end. We've got some very exciting projects in the pipeline, all in that space. And I think it is the space where we believe there is that opportunity in the market set against what the market has already achieved in scripted and animation as I said and also a growing level of infrastructure that currently if I look across the four or five major developments that are in in the pipeline terms of studio infrastructure I, I estimate there will be 30 new sound stages built in Ireland over the next three years, which is extraordinary in terms of, of the amount of infrastructure that will be available in the market. So studio-based content, particularly in the light entertainment space, will will definitely be uh, a big part of what we do. But also the fact end and the opportunity to shoot in Ireland and the backdrop that Ireland presents outside of studio is a terrific canvas to work on in the, in the unscripted space.
2: And do you think the pandemic has changed the programmes people want to watch? Do you think there is a kind of shift towards light entertainment as you've outlined.
1: Very much so. I mentioned the Mass Singer earlier. I think it would be a it would be probably a shining light of how the talent show genre, if you like, has moved to being less mean spirited and more kind and a warmth in the format. I think nobody has an appetite for negativity or cruelty at the moment. I think good old fashioned family values are being restored. And what was extraordinary about the mass singer. It's popularity from eight to 80, the shared viewing experience, children as young as eight enjoying the show without even being aware of who the celebrities were or who, but because of the sheer scale of the production. So I think it's a terrific example of where formats are going. And one only has to look at at where the streamers are going, Floors Lavas, and, you know, another example of uh, studio based entertainment shows that have popular appeal the world over, but that are, you know, have a warmth and a kindness at at the heart of it. So I think certainly there's a zeitgeist in what viewers are looking for in the unscripted space that will definitely inform our plans.
2: And where do you hope to launch shows? Are there any particular countries or platforms that you would like to see them made available?
1: Probably not surprisingly, say Ireland will be our our start point. And and why? Because, you know, we see Ireland as a great launch market. So if the question is, where do you see bigger stage launching shows, we, we believe part of what bigger stage brings to the global industry is the opportunity to not only produce and deliver and execute, but to also test. So we're excited by the opportunities and the relationships we have with the Irish broadcasters and the sophistication of the Irish broadcasters and the share of the Irish broadcasters command that that presents a terrific opportunity for, in an English-speaking market, to test format. So uh, certainly in terms of the pipeline work that's underway, we would see... These shows launching in Ireland and Ireland being, being a launch market but clearly uh, the UK presents um, equal opportunity and both in terms of launch and test so you know we're a one hour flight from London you know juxtaposition um, and obviously the common language common skills and industry standards mean the UK you know certainly presents a huge opportunity for bigger stage and a jumping off point to the rest of Europe and the US we, we're very excited by some conversations we're having with some major entities in the US in terms of their attraction and and the appeal that Ireland offers and indeed what bigger stage could potentially do so you know it's a it's a broad spectrum but principally the English-speaking territories of UK and US on top of using Ireland as a as a very obvious launch market.
2: And what challenges and opportunities do you think there is for the television industry in the year ahead?
1: Oh you know like like a lot of challenges there are also opportunities I think a big challenge would be probably meeting the demand I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges the industry is going to face. Clearly, there will be a lot of logistical issues around shooting whilst there are any sort of stages or phases of, of lockdown. So from that perspective, will demand exceed supply? It's a golden era, particularly for unscripted, never being so much demand. Will there be the requisite supply? I think that's certainly an opportunity, we believe, for for bigger stage and for the broader industry in Ireland to be able to meet some of this growing demand. So a challenge that potentially turns into an opportunity for some markets or some businesses like bigger stage, and probably the hardy annual of funding, uh, the, the, the which is why funding is very much at the heart of what we're doing here. New and creative and innovative ways of bringing more funding into our wonderful industry through either and, and in doing so, either heighten budgets, increase budgets, or create budgets for content that's currently going unproduced. So that that's the age old issue of of where the uh, where the budgets lie. Clearly, there's a the pace at which interest and demand and budgets are growing driven by uh, by streamers will slow down over time and I think that will be the challenge going forward is can the pace that we're currently seeing at the moment be kept up we'd like to think it can because the interest and the return to, to traditional viewership and, and, and behaviours that we're seeing out there will continue to fuel that demand and there's an economic model there where new and interesting and innovative ways of providing more funding so there are many opportunities we would see as there are challenges and, infer- and a lot of the channel challenges can be turned into opportunities.
2: Can you tell me a little bit more about your UK office, like where it will be and when it will open um, and if your discussions with US agencies have progressed?
1: Yes, on, on both fronts since we launched on the 1st of March, we've made progress. We've registered the business in the UK. We're currently considering our options in terms of location. We, we're now down to a shortlist in terms of offices. And obviously, a consideration on that is with regard to our plans in the UK. So really looking forward to making some announcements on that front in the coming weeks and months. And also in terms of the US, we've engaged with some of the top agencies in the US, and we're now on to second level conversations. And again, based on a significant uh, project that we have coming through out of the United States that we're looking forward to announcing uh, very soon, part of that will be tying down a fixed relationship with a US agency so very exciting few weeks ahead for for all of us here
2: are there any sort of hires that you've made recently um, other than Sean obviously
1: yes we've uh, we've we've brought in a number of staff into the into Sean's team in terms of some local some terrific local development executives we've also widening the team across the board in, as we count down to going live with the aforementioned projects that we're looking forward to announce in the coming weeks so more to come on that in terms of the, the bigger team also delighted to have brought in two other senior executives alongside Sean in the form of Jamie Macken, who was a, a, an Irish producer who went on to work for Ireland's biggest advertising agency Core Media. And Jamie comes in as our funding and partnerships lead and proud track record of that ongoing challenge we all have in the industry of combining and connecting brands and commercial activities with content to drive funding and on the other side jane russell we're delighted that jane has come in as our uh, talent director and is running our the talent side of our business which is both a talent management business in terms of that you know jane joins us from the business she founded outlaw management and brings in her stable of clients into the business we've signed a number of irish Uh, TV personalities to that stable even since we've gone live and so looking forward to really growing that area and that's an area where we're looking forward to developing talent as much as managing talent and indeed the opportunity we have under the mother brand to be able to bring talent into the content development process. So it's a busy office at the moment and and growing and looking forward to further growth and further news to come as I say over the coming weeks and months. I must say we are very excited by the interest that Bigger Stage has commanded from an international perspective. You know, it's a big development in the Irish industry, and I think we're going to work hard to earn the right to be talked about a little bit more outside Ireland as much as within Ireland.
0: Pat Keeley from Bigger Stage speaking with Ruth Laws. Andrew Eastill is the creative director of UK indie Middlechild. Focusing on factual content, the Brighton-based business specializes in returnable, often access-led documentary series. This year it scored a Royal Television Society nomination for a Channel 5 feature doc on the Nuremberg Trials, and Eastall spoke to Ruth Laws about how this has informed Middle Child's development slate moving forwards, as well as the broader outlook for the documentary sector.
3: We are a factual television producer. Um, we're based in Brighton now. Um, we were for a long time based in uh, London and then just uh, under two years ago, I think we moved down to Brighton. Um, we specialise mainly in returnables, returning series that um, uh, evolve around access, so observational documentary series. Um, we've made eight series of things like The Dog Rescuers with Alan Davis, we've made a show called bear dodgers um, for channel 5 in recent years with access to transport for london and um, we've just finished a series called secrets of the transport museum for uk tv so those kind of shows um, are kind of our bread and butter, I suppose, and what we sort of love making and um, uh, uh, seem to get commissioned to make.
2: Excellent. Um, And you've recently secured an RTS nomination for your feature-length documentary, The World's Biggest Murder Trial, Nuremberg. Can you tell me about it and why it stands out um, among other documentaries? Yeah,
3: so um, we pitched this at the beginning of um, 2020. Uh, We hadn't previously done any uh, history docs, For anyone really, and and this was a pitch to Channel Five. So last year was um, seventy-five years uh, since the um, Nuremberg Trials, Um, and it was an an area of history which I I wouldn't profess to be uh, an expert um, on. uh, Which I, I quite like that as subject matters because I think probably I'm not a bad litmus test of the average member of public in the UK, and so. Um, I think those kind of subjects, sometimes when you're aware of um, the event, but you don't know the details of it, can be potentially good proposals for TV docs. Um, so we pitched um, the Doctor Channel 5 um, as a feature length doc. I suppose I addressed it up for them as um, something that was a bit um, less conventional than the sort of standard history doc um, that people might expect. By that, I I felt like a courtroom story, so um, the Nuremberg Trials story, potentially it could be made in the sort of contemporary style that something like um, Making a Murderer was made, or um, the O.J. Simpson Trials, for example. The idea was that we would do it in a chronological order, so the story plays out without the viewer necessarily knowing what happens, and, and to be fair, you would naturally assume that most of the nazis on trial um, would all be convicted and that isn't actually the case so there are some twists and turns along the way the also we wanted to do it uh, in a style that was more like the sort of acid copadia docs which was no voiceover no interviews in vision which we felt would be uh, a sort of much more immersive experience um than your standard conventional history documentary um when we're using so much archive over 90 minutes sometimes if you sort of cut away to a talking head interview, you, you can sort of lose that immersive experience that um, the archive can bring. So Channel 5 thankfully um, said yes, and we managed to secure the services of a brilliant director called Jenny Ash, who really liked the idea as well. Uh, and she managed to sort of turn that vision into a reality and did an absolutely incredible job, which led to, as you said, an RTS nomination, which was the first for Middle Child.
2: That's really exciting. And are you looking to go into more history documentaries now that you've made one? Is that what your appetite?
3: I think the, the answer to that is, we, well, we made, we actually made two more history docs last year as well, both for Channel 5, uh, Big History of America and the Big History of Australia, and each of those was two hours in length. And they were much more sort of conventional history docs We love making them as well. Um, I think we absolutely would make more history docs, especially with the idea of trying to make them perhaps less conventional. Um, So we are already looking at um, other sort of big um, international type trials or murder trials where we could um, adapt a a similar treatment to what we did to, to to Nuremberg generally speaking I think um, making more single documentaries um, or feature length documentaries is is definitely something we would um, we would like to do a lot more of than we have done today
2: and why is that why are you looking into doing more feature length documentaries
3: David some uh, MD and I are at heart we're just documentary lovers and and want to be making documentary films for you know the rest of our careers so I think that's the, 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 the first reason why we'd like to do more of them we've been going now for a number of years and and in the past it's potentially been quite tricky to make a decision to put some of our resources as a relatively small indie uh, into the development and the pitching of single documentaries because we have to think commercially uh, it may be where our pa- passion lies um but we have a business to run and, and staff to pay and so forth and so the best thing i think it, it, over the years probably the best thing that we've decided to sort of Spend our time and resources on has been uh, searching for more returnable series, which I think most indies would say are um, you know, the sort of the holy grail, I suppose, for um, for, for having that kind of consistency um, for the business. Um, I think we've been really, like lots of other producers, we've been really, really happy to see that documentary feels like it's had a massive revival in the last few years. And I think that's been reflected by broadcasters in the UK commissioning probably more of them, I would imagine, than they would um, have been doing so in recent times. Um, Also, there's perhaps more money being spent on them. And they're more open, I think, to doing short runs of quite landmark subjects, which are all doing really well. and, And they're getting a good audience response, which is great. So... it it feels like a much better time for us to justify spending time and resources on trying to develop and then pitch feature docs because um, there's perhaps a a better chance than ever of being able to get them away. The budgets are potentially higher in some areas. And actually, it's potentially more commercially viable to build a business around or to certainly um, for us to have it as um, uh, another arm of the business, if you like making regular single documentaries or short runs feels much more commercially viable than it may have done.
2: Um, and why do you think that document like viewing documentaries are no longer niche viewing? What do you think has changed?
3: I think that obviously documentaries have always, have always had fans um, and there's always been an audience for them. I think the streaming services have probably been the conduit to this sort of revolution, if that's what it is, um, in documentary. Um, they've had successes. Possibly um, one of the first one being something like making a murderer on Netflix. Maybe that was a bit of a surprise to them, but certainly there was a formula there that worked, um, and they've capitalised on that, as can be seen now by the sort of um, the amount of big budget feature docs that are churned out and factual series. I think they've adopted almost their own style of documentary, which is quite now synonymous with that kind of Netflix look and feel. But that has fed down, I think, to the broadcasters uh, in the UK as well, which is brilliant. There's obviously an audience for it and, the, and those streaming successes have, have proved that. Um, and I think that's what's probably been the impetus for broadcasters to try and to try and repeat. Um, and, and that's why there's now a much more kind of high end feeling, um, high production values, really great storytelling going on uh, in documentary that um, at some point, maybe, as you said, stereotypically perhaps was looked upon as uh, uh, more current affairs, um, more niche subject matters.
2: And what do you think the pandemic's impact has been on factual TV production?
3: Pandemic's been really tough for, I think, anyone working in TV production. Factual's possibly been better off than scripted um, in that it can probably adapt a bit better Um, it's slightly easier for it to adapt. Obviously, certain productions were were cancelled and and perhaps um, cannot be filmed at all during the pandemic, but others have been able to adapt. And the pandemic's actually um, allowed some people to be super creative and take advantage of it. And I think Swan Films, and Grayson's Art Club's a great example of that. Um, something which you know potentially now will run and run and run, but um, was spawned, I think, you know, by the pandemic. So that's something that factual TV was was able to do. But yeah, it's been it's been really, really tough. We've had productions that were postponed. We had something that was cancelled at the start of the year um because of COVID. And we've had to adapt, and we've had to find ways of continuing to be in production, but we have managed to do it. I'm hoping, thinking really optimistically, that we you know we could enter into a bit of a boom time, certainly for the types of shows that we make. So access-led observational documentaries. I think looking for access to big institutions potentially might be something that becomes a little bit easier over the course of the next few months. I mean, I'm getting the impression from the conversations that we're having that some of these institutions and organizations are as keen as anyone to um, get themselves out there again. They need to market themselves, they need to advertise themselves and find a way of getting visitors to return to them, for example. Um, And I'm I'm hoping that we might be able to capitalise on that um, uh, and and help them um, get that kind of visibility through, you know, documentary.
2: And what do you think the pandemic's impact was on viewers' consumption? Do you think people are now more or less interested in factual TV, for example?
3: Quite a tough question. I think, generally speaking, um, we're all a lot more news obsessed, I think, than perhaps um, we once were. certainly from when I was growing up, there was um, much less access to news. I think now we have more access to news. There is this sort of 24 hour rolling news coverage. We can see it on our phones in a a heartbeat. We follow it, whether it's via a newspaper online or via social media. So I think there is a a general greater interest in, in news full stop that probably has helped with the sort of um, desire for more factual television um, as well. There's definitely an, there's definitely a stronger appetite for it than perhaps there's there's ever been.
2: Um, and Middle Child is now based in Brighton, as you mentioned earlier. Do you think the industry has been too London centric?
3: Uh, it's a really tough question, and perhaps um, I'm not maybe the best person to, to answer it, but. Um, I think from, I can only talk from our perspective, and, and we are a small indie that once was in London and now are in Brighton. When we were in London, we, we rarely um, worked on productions that were filmed in London. So we were always filming all over the country. So in that respect, even though we were a London indie, we were employing people and filming at locations around the country. So I wouldn't say that when we were based in London that we were a London London centric production company. In some ways, you know, London's probably the most diverse place. the country. So, you know, perhaps there's an argument that a little bit more should be done in London and it shouldn't be sort of avoided at all costs, which sometimes it feels a little bit like it is. We had, as I mentioned, we made a a series for Channel 5 called Fair Dodgers, which was access to transport for London. And the discussions we had during the development for that were, you know, will this be popular because it's based in London? Um, And obviously it's it's a good idea, (laughs) even if we do so, so myself. Uh, And it's, it's Transport for London, which is um, inherently potentially a sort of popular subject matter. But it did rate really, really well, um, and it was a, a very diverse show because of it. Um, so I, I think it's quite hard to say that everything's too London-centric, or, or certainly it doesn't feel like it is anymore from from our perspective of things. Yeah, I I, I would say no. <laughs> in short.
2: Um, And do you think on the flip side, even if it isn't too London centric, do you think there's enough is being done to encourage TV production in our nations and regions? Again, from our
3: perspective, it certainly feels like over the last maybe five years, a lot more is being done um, to make sure, you know, there's obvious things that the BBC have been doing for years with their quotas, Channel 4's redefining their different locations and so on. So there's a lot that's, that's going into it. I think there's probably still some areas of the country which feel quite underserved um the northeast for example we are actually um currently in the process of considering um opening a second office in the northeast Um we've sort of done a lot of development work in that area of the country um, we know there's some good off-screen talent there but there aren't many if any sort of production companies in that area although it was Good to hear that the BBC have just employed a dedicated Northeast commissioner. Um, so that seems to be changing as well. So there probably still are some kind of unserved areas of the country, both in terms of um, productions being made in those areas, but I think probably more importantly, employers being based in those areas. I think there's certainly certain areas of the country where if you want to be in television, um, you're not necessarily living in the right place. So you're going to have to move to get a job. And, and that's maybe where the system is a little bit broken in terms of actual productions that you see on TV. You know, I think there is a there is a decent spread geographically. It feels um, uh, of content. It feels like the country geographically is, is probably pretty well represented on screen. I feel like you do see most of the areas of the country now on your television. But I don't think the television industry is a national industry in the strictest sense. Just because you are going to have, if you live in certain areas, you are going to have to move cities to have a chance of having a career in television. Um, and if that problem can be fixed, that's you know, only going to benefit the industry as a whole. You know, there is going to be an even greater employer. There's going to be even more diverse voices um, developing new ideas and so on. So I think maybe it's falling down there. But you, you have to say that over the last few years, the broadcasters are recognising that, and you know, are actively trying to change it. So in that respect, it should get better. But it, we moved to Brighton, um, and there are other indies down here, um, and there were before we got here. But since we've been here in the last couple of years, more and more have have arrived. one of the big advantages for us has been that community when we were in london we didn't really feel like we were in a tv community and we didn't really know any other production companies particularly um in london whereas here you naturally form a collaborative community with the other companies around you and that's been brilliant for us and there's a talent pool that we we all um draw from and they're brilliant and it's been incredibly helpful to have that and I imagine you could do the same as we are discussing in the Northeast in time. And then that creates um, um, another location for some great off screen talent potentially.
2: Are there any upcoming projects or commissions that you can talk
3: about? I think, like I said before, we're trying to develop more feature docs, and there's some amazing things in the pipeline. And when we hope we can get them away, obviously. But um, certainly, we're looking at the justice system at a really local level, and we've got some amazing access um, on that front. Um, much less your kind of high-end crime stories and much more your sort of, um, I've coined a phrase, which is perhaps isn't quite right, but the sort of relatable crime stories, those sort of everyday crime stories or those, those everyday things that you might need a lawyer for that I think at some point in our lives, we all would. And um, so we work on something really good in that space. And equally working on something quite shocking at the opposite end of the scale, which is looking at domestic violence in the over 70s, where there is a huge black hole of support, but a massive problem. So fingers crossed, those sort of things um, turn into commissions and you get to see them. There are these universal subjects which are really important. And I think sometimes they can feel so big and broad, they're quite hard to turn into something that's focused enough for an audience. Um, It's almost too much to get your head around. So domestic violence is a huge problem on so many levels. It's very difficult to package that up in a way that is laser focused enough to get through to an audience and I think often we will try to zero in on a certain area of these topics um, that allows us to be a bit more focused about what we're making and it therefore has a bigger impact and and, and hopefully some benefit and um, looking at that issue from the perspective of the over 70s and the sort of freedom of information requests we've done to councils and so forth and the, the data that's come back about that is quite shocking in that there is a huge lack of support for people that find themselves um, in that position, a huge lack of training for the people that might be the ones that could identify that as a problem, and and even the data, the data collection until very recently wasn't happening for anybody um, being killed by a loved one over the age of 59. I mean, it's it, yeah, it's quite shocking, but we have some amazing access to a group of people uh, in Wales who are essentially doing the job which in many ways you would hope one day might be in every sort of local authority region Um, and they're sort of standard bearers for research and and work in this area Uh, and through them we're hoping to be able to speak to some of the survivors um, who uh, have been through, um, who've had their support and um, managed to come out the other side of it, it, it's it's a shocking kind of slightly niche area of a, of a bigger problem that um, definitely seems to to the radar, unfortunately. So the more docs we can make like that, the, the sort of, you know... Yep. The, I mean, as filmmakers, that's, that's you know, that's what we'd all love to be doing. But as people that run a business and have staff to look after, you know, we also need those other returnable things.
0: Andrew Eastall from Middlechild, speaking with Ruth Laws. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 Online on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.